I, I think part of the reason this upset on Saturday, and I keep calling it that, uh, is so monumentous is because this was not a bad Mount Union team. They were they had all the ingredients just like all the other elite Mount Union teams did. And for North Central to to go in there and go blow for blow and to rally a couple times when they're down the second half, I thought just makes it that much more of an accomplishment. I'm surprised we haven't batted around the the best game in D3 history label. Fourth and goal at the 15. Fulford back. Pressure's on. He's dropping back farther and farther. Lobs it up. Picked in the end zone. The Raiders have been upset at home in the second round of the Division Three playoffs. It's been one heck of a ride, and I thank God for every moment of it. Can't, can't even hang my head. It sucks. We, we lose one game. I think it's the end of the world. We win so much. Montana takes a snap. Looking under pressure. Pass throw. He's got a man. Touchdown. And it's Dan Allen again. Dan Allen into the end zone for the score. And the Aggies have a 30 to 10 lead. Hey, it's fun to play in December. It's fun to play football, man. It's the greatest game in the world. It really is. I mean, I get to play. Tell these guys today, we go out to practice, we get to play football. You know, if we're not smiling, we're supposed to be smiling. You know, we get heaven and we get to play football. That's what we can call it. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, the twice-weekly show about the largest division of college football. We welcome you to podcast number 264, the one with the second-round shocker. It's the podcast for December 2nd of 2019. That was uh, Billy Beebe and Will Brienza on the call for WRMU, then wide receiver Justin Hill talking about Mount Union's loss. Gordon Mann with the highlight for Delaware Valley Athletics, and then Wheaton coach Mike Swider. Just some of the sounds from around the Division Three football bracket in Saturday's second round. We'll get all of that and more to you here in the next hour or so. So thanks for joining us. I'm Pat Coleman, the executive editor of D3Football.com. I'm Keith McMillan, the longtime co-host and former player who was once on the field for a 50-50 to game, but never a 62-41 to or a 59-52. This is turning out to be one of the most enjoyable postseasons since we started covering them, Pat, in 1999. And, and for the entirety of that run, Mount Union has been one of the last four teams standing. And I understand you have some thoughts on what it means now that they're not. In responding to all of those years where people argued for Mount Union to somehow be kicked out of Division Three, what is it we always said? We challenged people to step up their game, and they did. If you've heard this from us before, you'll know what's next. But for the rest of you, let us tell you a story. Once upon a time... Mount Union could rip off 54 consecutive wins and win three national championships in a row. And they could follow that with 55 wins in a row and another three national titles. But then along comes UW Whitewater. The Warhawks stepped up and gave Mount Union a challenge in two stag bowls and then won one, starting a run of six titles in eight seasons under head coach Lance Leipold from 2007 through 2014. Following that, we got Mary Harden Baylor. Following a trip to the Stag Bowl in 2004, the Crusaders crew reached the semifinals four times in seven years. 
years, then returned to the Stag Bowl in 2016, walking away with the walnut and bronze. UMHB had beaten Mount Union in the 2016 semifinals, and they split two Stag Bowl meetings with the Purple Raiders in 2017 and 2019. That doesn't even include teams such as UW Oshkosh with a Stag Bowl and a semifinal appearance in the past three seasons, or St. Thomas with two Stag Bowls and a semifinal trip since 2011. The point here is we got what we asked for. The circle of teams which can win the Stag grows a team or so every few years. After winning 9 of 13 Stag Bowls from 1996 to 2008, Mount Union has won just 3 of the next 11. That includes the one which hasn't been played yet, a Stag Bowl which is guaranteed to either feature a team which has never been to the championship before, or one that hasn't played for the title in 33 years. That's because on Saturday, North Central added itself to the shortlist of teams to win playoff games at Mount Union. It isn't necessary to kick teams out in order to make for better competition. Even if you are, say, president of a private college in the state of Minnesota. What you need to do is rise to the challenge. UW Whitewater, Mary Harden Baylor, and North Central are on the list of teams that have done so. Who is next? This edition of the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is sponsored by Gotta Have It at GottaHaveItFanFoams.com. These are the 3D logo fan foam wall signs we've been talking about uh, this whole season. Uh, they've been uh, great sponsors of this podcast. Keith, I was uh, shown on a Saturday that they are in the Mount Union bookstore, for example. Uh, Mount Union, one of the uh, half dozen Division three teams on here. A couple of teams that are still alive as well. If you are shopping for a Whitewater fan or shopping for a Mary Harden Baylor fan, gotta have it. Fanfoams.com is the place to go here right now, this time of the holiday season. Yeah, absolutely. These are amazing looking. They feel amazing. They're light yet durable. And uh, of course, as we've been saying all season, they're by folks who understand and love D3 and want to promote it. And so that's one of the reasons we're happy they're on board with us. Indeed. Yeah, there's a, a wide variety of them if you're you know a fan of a particular Division One school or a, a military academy, a service academy. They're, you know, they're big games coming up. You know, those are teams that are on here as well. But you, if you're a D3 school who isn't among the half dozen listed, you know, get in touch with these guys, fill out the form, try to figure out, you know, there's ways to get your school added to this list. Deal with the licensing and then use it for fundraising. Use it as, you know, incentives for uh, alumni donations and that sort of thing. There's lots of possibilities because these are pretty cool. And like Keith said, it's D3 people behind it, and that really makes it uh, special for this level. So go to gottahabitfanfoams.com, and we thank Gotta Have It for sponsoring the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. 
All right, sorry for the digression there, Keith, but uh, you know, sometimes people just listen better when you tell them a bedtime story. Well, Pat, that was tremendous. And, and of course, you're suggesting that sometimes people listen at all. Not everybody wants to, to hear mm. rationalness. No making up words. Um, when their team is, has just lost or when their team, they're hoping their team advances to the stag bowl. But I do, I do think part of what you um, artfully and musically talked about in there was uh, old news in that there were always teams during the height of the Mount Union Whitewater run that challenged the Purple Powers. Remember, we kept that running list of Purple Raiders and Warhawks wins that were one-score games in the fourth quarter, and somehow the same two teams would win them all. It wasn't just the other Purple Powers, Mary Harden-Baylor, St. Thomas, and Linfield. It was Wesley, Wartburg, and this very North Central program that had the powerhouses on the ropes. The difference this time is that someone got it done and that it happened so early. Yeah, early in the bracket. Those are important differences, though, right? Winning after 60 minutes is what determines what's a win and what's a loss. Yeah, well, thanks for clarifying. If the game had been a semifinal, as you might think a number one versus number five matchup would be, it wouldn't have been the monumental upset it became. But because Mountain Union hadn't exited in its second playoff game or missed the semifinals since 1994, this was a major deal. You'd have to go back to 1991 when the players in Saturday's game were very much unborn to find a time that Mount Union didn't at least appear in the national quarterfinals. At the same time, let's disabuse ourselves of the notion that this was a grand failure of a Mount Union team. Of course, an alliance deep runs into December are expected and teams with senior experience are expected to bring home the walnut and bronze. But this bunch of Purple Raiders won every game by 23 points or more. They were statistically elite, second nationally in both total offense and total defense, featured a senior quarterback who had already led them to a national championship, and a dynamic wide receiver who led the nation in receiving coming into the game. So to suggest that this was a subpar Mount Union team takes the credit away from what North Central accomplished. And to be honest, that's a top five team with a Gallardi Trophy semifinalist senior quarterback that just went toe-to-toe with the, the number one team in the country. So I don't think the outcome, the outcome is quite as amazing as two things. That North Central twice rallied from 10-point deficits in the second half to win in Alliance and where it leaves us with this overall bracket. Now we're looking at one side of, of the playoff bracket where three programs have national championship pedigree and there's a fourth that some people think is the best remaining team in the field. That would be Wheaton. And on the other side, either Salisbury, Muhlenberg, North Central, or Delaware Valley is going to the Stag Bowl. Let that sink in for a second. All of those are perennially successful programs, but only one has been to the national championship game previously, and that was as Salisbury State back in 1986. So if you're looking for a takeaway now that it's Monday, it's time to turn the page from holy crap, Mountain Union lost, to holy crap, we have a wide open tournament heading into the quarterfinals or the final eight. I mean, all you have to do is just look at some of the things that uh, fans say and realize that old news is still news to many, many people. I think sometimes, actually, we could probably stand to go over multiple things multiple times, like the fact that the D3Football.com Top 25 has no bearing on the playoffs or the seedings. But it will tell you, for example, who will win playoff games. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, coming up later. But yes, North Central beat Mountain Union at Mountain Union 59 to 52, the final score on Saturday. We'll talk about that and the other seven games and get you the first look at our four quarterfinals. We'll talk with North Central coach Jeff Thorne and we'll hear reactions from elsewhere around the bracket. 
Top left, let's start off with Mary Harden Baylor rolling past Huntington 42 to 6. Keith, uh, one of the things I in this game I thought was interesting was that the crew played Jefferson Fritz at linebacker. He's been a safety as well as the punter for UMHB, but it sounded like they wanted to make it harder for teams to avoid him. The Hawks were not able to avoid him as he intercepted a pass and also took a ball back for a defensive two-point conversion. Here's how crew coach Pete Fredenberg described it. This was something that we had really actually did last year uh, with Jalen Martin. And uh, when Akeem went down, we just needed somebody to go in and play that linebacker type person, but he actually uh, is the middle run through. We call him the middle run through. And you know, all year long, I've been thinking about moving uh, Fritzy closer to the ball. And I just think that he, he's an incredible player, an incredible athlete, and to get him closer to the ball uh, would be pretty smart in my opinion. Uh, uh, Fritz had to work though this week. He was he was sweating up a storm in practice you know, like it was usually. Keith, middle run-through is a new piece of terminology for me, I got to admit. Well, you know, it's Texas, man. Everything's a little different, right? Even a safeties, right? Like DBs don't want to be where the action is. Um, like, you know, you, you make a play, you get a couple plays off. Even safeties, you have to do some run fits. But you, a lot of your times you, you're you're running up and the, the defensive line linebackers have already cleaned everything up and you're kind of just tagging the pile. Sometimes, though, you get stuck in that position where you're all around the action. And, and you know, there, there's not really a better guy for, uh, for UMHB to do it with than Jefferson Fritz. And he was you know, amazing. The, the interception that you referenced, he was falling backward and the ball pops loose as he hits the ground. And so he's on the ground and he has to reach his arms out and pull it in again uh, to, to re-intercept it. He had two interceptions on the, on the same play practically. And then, uh, you know, to be in the right place at the right time when that kick is blocked and the, the first hint of, of momentum or just a good thing happening for Huntington in that game when they score a touchdown and they're cutting it to 34-6 and they just want to, you know, kick the extra point. Mary Harden Baylor blocks it, takes it back, and so that's what you have to deal with when you when you play a, a Mary Harden Baylor team. Is um, for all the criticism that that Coach Fredenberg and his offensive staff over the years have gotten for being sometimes conservative offensively, and I think that's changed, you know, in the past few years. But it was definitely more of a thing in the late two thousands and early two twenty teens. They're they're innovative and interesting defensively and on special teams. You'll see them uh, pull out the, all the stops. Uh, on those special teams, you'll see them do things defensively when they have a playmaker like a Jefferson Fritz, or you can go back to the Baylor Mullins days or Josh Kubiak when they had these like whirling dervishes of, of safeties that they can move around. I, I just think that one of the reasons they are so good and have been for so many years is because they, they not only do they recruit great players, but they figure out when they have a great one, they just figure out we're going to use this guy to the best of his ability. We'll figure out where to put him and, and not be sort of locked into this is the system and, and you're trying to jam this guy into the system, but they're, they're adjusting the system around the players that they have. Also in the top left bracket, UW-Whitewater jumped out to a 34-7 lead and held off Wartburg 41-28. Whitewater won with just 236 yards of total offense, but didn't really need it, especially in the first quarter. Noah Dodd threw an interception in Wartburg territory. Brennan Getch fumbled in Wartburg territory, and the Knights' first punt was blocked and went just 21 yards. So the Warhawks needed 94 yards of offense to take 
a 17 nothing lead. Justin Prostanak also returned to punt 67 yards for a score earlier in the second quarter. Warper got as close as 13 with nine and a half minutes left, but Dodd threw two more picks in the fourth quarter, and Whitewater wrapped the game up. And for Whitewater, you know, I think as a fan, you can talk yourself into this being a national championship team. You can probably reason with yourself and, and have this be a team that loses by two touchdowns at Mary Harden Baylor because they show these these moments of amazingness, and it'll be a quarter or a a uh, you know particular unit that has a real standout game, and then they'll they'll they just don't dominate the way that previous Whitewater teams have, and that's fine. Obviously, it's gotten them this far. They can win ugly. Uh, they're sort of built to win ugly. They can. They have three good running backs. They're um, obviously had switched quarterbacks in, in to start the playoffs, so they're not going to uh, you know put the ball in Max Mailer's hands and make, make him throw 40 times. You know, he threw like 17 passes or something on Saturday. But the defense, by forcing those uh, those five turnovers and, uh, and four Noah Dodd interceptions, I, I think just made it a game where the offense didn't have to carry them across the finish line. You see them scoring 41 points, but it wasn't a game where they went up and down the field. The defense really set them up, and, and that's, that's fine. You know, this is going to be a team that now is three rounds into the playoffs and – hasn't been I don't want to say hasn't been tested because I don't want to give Wartburg short shrift but but I mean they they haven't had to sort of um, pull out all the stops to win a game yet and I think that does play a little bit into their into their advantage when they head down to Texas under the uh, bottom left quadrant of this bracket where Wheaton wasn't happy with how it played last week in a 51 to 7 win against Martin Luther the Thunder came out a lot stronger on Saturday in a second-round game against Central. Here's Wheaton coach Mike Swider's take on that 35-point first quarter. Well, it was important. We, like, like Luke said, we scored early, we got some turnovers, we capitalized on the field position. And, uh, you know, the thing that was really amazing is, is we had, the wind was in our face in the first quarter. And, uh, and we scored 35 points, was it? 35 points into the wind. Now, part of that was good field position. We, Tackle a punter on the 20-yard line, had two turnovers, but we cashed in on it. You know, we did. Our offense took advantage of those. I mean, it, you know, we have all these points and don't even have 500 yards of offense because we had some short fields. Keith, once you score 35 points into the wind in the first quarter, it's got to be nearly impossible for anyone to come back, even the way Central played last week. And in case there was any doubt, Wheaton then ground out a 96-yard drive in the third quarter to keep the Dutch offense on the sidelines. Well, and you heard Mike Swider talk about a little bit of the similarities with uh, with what Whitewater did, where they were just so good, so fast that they didn't need to to rack up tons and tons of offense over the course of the game. You know, I think there was it was it was thirty minutes of real time, and they already had twenty eight points. You know, at one thirty, you you're looking around. You know, all these games are, have all kicked off at the same time, and then and then the second wave starts an hour later. And so it was, it was one 30 Eastern time and 1230 in central. And uh, you're like, how does Wheaton already have four touchdowns? Like it's, it's ridiculous. And I think what is scary to the other teams in the bracket, and you saw Mary Harden Baylor fans and, 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 you know, everybody tweeting this sort of thing after Saturday's results shook out. When you combine North central beating mountain union and then Wheaton beating a team that had beaten Wisconsin Oshkosh the week before, and Oshkosh had beaten Whitewater. So, you know, you play the transitive property game. You're like, if Central is as good as these two WIAC teams and Wheaton put 35 on them in the first quarter, how good is Wheaton? Wheaton 
scored 28 points in the second half against North Central. How good is Wheaton? And so there are people out there, and, and they wouldn't be wrong to think this, that think maybe the Thunder are the best team alive in the tournament. That being said, they're going to face uh, Jackson Erdman, the reigning Gallardi Trophy winner, uh, who led his team to 600-some-odd yards offense on Saturday and St. John's uh, on this coming Saturday in the quarterfinals. So Wheaton could be the best team in the tournament, or they could be out this weekend. Final score of that game was Wheaton 49, Central 13. On the on that St. John's-Chapman game, uh, like we said on our most recent podcast, number 263, Chapman didn't present the same style of threat offensively to St. John's that Aurora did. And Keith, TJ Hodge said in the post-game interviews that Chapman didn't disguise anything on defense. If they showed blitzed, they blitzed. If they showed cover five, they played cover five. Has to make it easy if you have a smart, experienced quarterback like Jackson Erdman. He threw for five touchdowns, and they won that game 55-26. Yeah, and I mean, I feel like disguising is one of the the basic things you can do to help yourself along with you know communicating and having hand signals or all these like little ways on defense where you can you can help yourself. But I also think when you're going against someone of that stature, and this is maybe what, what Chapman's logic was, that you don't want to confuse your players. You just want you want them to basically line up and, and play the defense that you played all season. Um, St. John's, they have playmakers on the outside. These guys have been getting better every every week. You know, we had midseason. Uh, we talked to, to Ravi Austin on the podcast, and they were talking a little bit about how that rapport has grown over the course of the year. Because remember, these guys were all brand new starters to Erdman. That was the big offseason storyline that he lost his whole his whole receiving core. And, uh, you know, now that we're 12 games in going into number 13 this, this week, you know, these guys aren't new anymore. And, and I think you get to a Chapman program as, as many times as, as, you know, we peeked in on their games this season because they played so late in the West coast, it was easy to watch quarter or half of a Chapman game while we're getting ready to do the podcast or wrapping up whatever we're doing on Saturday night. I don't think physically they, um, are quite as as good a or just you know they just don't have the same caliber of athletes and you look at Jackson Erdman a guy who you know started his career in D one so I, I think Chapman got as much as it could out of out of this roster this season it was really a tremendous year for them considering that they beat um, two Northwest Conference teams they played two home playoff games and and put up that epic sixty eight sixty five win against Linfield in round one can't take anything. Uh, away from Chapman, but I think now you're 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 facing the cream of the crop and like there's there's really nobody left in this tournament um that that's weak. Road only gets tougher for St. John's and the Johnnies are well aware of that. Here's uh, Jackson Erdman and Coach Gary Foshing talking about what's next. Absolutely I think every week it gets bigger and bigger. Um, especially going down to Wheaton they're a crazy good football team, you know, higher stakes, better opponents. Um so I'm looking forward to it. So just like Gary says, every every week, one game at a time, you know, so this week it's Wheaton, so moving forward. So we, t- we talked about, uh, you know, when you're in the playoffs, your first game, if you win that, you get rewarded by playing a better team in the second round, and if you win that, you get rewarded by playing another great team in the third round and so on. So we know as the playoffs go along, uh, you're going to face some really, really good football teams, and... Um, you know, we faced two good ones already, and we know Wheaton's going to be really tough, a big physical football team, and we're going to have to be at our very best next week. But um, I love our guys. I love the way they play, the way they prepare, and uh, we'll be ready to go. 
Moving on to the top right, that's where Salisbury pulled away in a shootout with Union and Muhlenberg pulled away in a shutout of Brockport. The final in that first one is the number that Keith uh, referenced earlier, 62 to 41. Salisbury with the win against Union. And we'll start off with the Union's Paul Chambers describing what it's like to defend against Salisbury, including against slotback Mike Ryan Mofor. You know, when you game plan against a team like that, you look at them, you got big, tall, strong, physical players up front. Um, you know, and they fire off the ball, and they have athletes back there. And I mean, I guess I could shout out number one, uh, the fullback. I thought when we looked at the tape, we didn't think he was that good. <laughs> I mean, he played a heck of a game, and he was tough to bring down. Um, so I thought he played an amazing game. And honestly, it was, it was a, even though they put up 60 on us, it was still a hell of a lot of fun playing football. Folks, don't tap the microphone or the table at these post-game news conferences, or maybe he's trying to send Morse code to somebody. On the other side, here is Seagulls quarterback Jack Lanham talking about the balance that the Seagulls had on Saturday between the run and the pass. The rush game sets out the passes, and when we start throwing the ball, they have to respect that and play back, and that opens it up to run the ball. So, I mean, basically our philosophy is we're just going to take what they give us. Um, I think early in the first, over through two passes that were pretty open, and so we made a mental note of that. We were going to come back to that. Um, but honestly, I give the coaches the credit. They put us in a great position to be successful, and guys around me executed well. Lanham, 9 of 15 passing for 215 yards and three touchdowns. Uh, ran for 29 yards. Mike Ryan Mofor, who was, uh, we were talking about a few minutes ago, 20 carries for 144 yards, three scores on the ground. You know, this Salisbury offense obviously is uh, is clicking. It's on uh, multiple cylinders right now. Uh, the defense, you know, had a little bit of trouble stopping Union, obviously. Yeah, and Salisbury's defense has had games where it's just outscored teams. You know, I, th- I go back to the Wesley game where it was 45-38, and really, you know, th- there was times in that game where, where late in the game where, where Salisbury was up two touchdowns, so it felt the final score looked closer than it was, but I don't think Salisbury's going to shut Muhlenberg or anybody they play after Muhlenberg, if they're they're fortunate enough to win that game, I don't think they're going to shut anybody out. Um, but that's okay. I mean, I, I think I think because they're so dynamic offensively, you know, they they they're going to they're going to present a problem either way. And here's what would be scary to me: thinking about Salisbury going forward. Union has seen the option before. Union's players have right. Every coaching staff in the country has a plan for the option but the the deal is how can you communicate this plan to your players within uh three to four practice days how can you replicate it well enough in practice so that when they see it on saturday and you're seeing all this misdirection in the backfield you don't know which guy really even has the ball how can you replicate it some level of just good enough so that the the players get an idea what's supposed to be happening it's not going to be quite as good as they see it when Salisbury runs it. If Union, who has played Springfield during the season and has seen option, has defended against option principles and has, has put this a, a similar plan in once before the season, if they gave up 62, how, how, what's Muhlenberg and, and anybody else down the line going to do? You know, their best bet is to have um, not just a solid plan, uh, probably one of the ones where you want to keep it relatively simple, but also to just have superior athletes. And, and that may be, Muhlenberg's best bet does Salisbury try to run away from Frankie Feaster most likely Salisbury probably just does what they normally do uh, and and throw some extra wrinkles in there but 
you have to get your your players. You know, when you're talking about a Muhlenberg, they're just going to have to get their their elite defensive players to play the best game of their lives. Could be the best game in this round. You know, and we'll, we'll talk about a little later what the best um, games look like. But I mean, who can pick a favorite between the fourth ranked team in the country, the sixth ranked team in the country? Both racking up points like nobody's business. Muhlenberg hasn't had to had to play the level of competition that some other teams that that advance to the to the round of sixteen have. But to their credit, they haven't given MIT or Brockport an inch to breathe. I mean, the both two shutouts, um, scoring plenty offensively, 38-0, 42-0, could do whatever they want. Um, they're they're dangerous, and I think it's gonna be a great game on Saturday. Well, you talked about the uh, Muhlenberg defensive staff. That includes Corey David, the team's defensive coordinator, and uh, Mickey Cober, who had uh, one and a half of the team's 12 tackles for loss. Twelve guys had those 12 tackles for loss. Here he talks about how the Mules' offense makes it easier often on the defense. Yeah, we just, we're buying the Coach David's scheme, and everyone knows that they have a special part. Um, the coach is doing a great job keeping us fresh, subbing us. Um, all the time, and uh, it's, it's really easy when we can play off the offensive momentum. When we jump out on people, we get, we get their offenses to fold, and we just do what we do. Dominating time of possession, I would say, is another thing because it keeps us fresh, and everyone's chopping at the bit to make a play, so when we're out there, it's just a bunch of dogs running around. Keith, Brockport got into Muhlenberg territory once in the first half, and they got as close as the 40-yard line in the third, and that is it. I mean, we knew Brockport would have issues on offense in this game, but the Golden Eagles really didn't come close. Yeah, during the portion of the game I was monitoring, there was a play where uh, Jay LaCode for, um, for, for Brockport takes the screen pass and turns it into like a 40-, 50-yard play, and there was a block in the back. And, and I, you could tell at that point Brockport's like, man, this is like – this is the, our best chance. This is as close as we're going to get here. And uh, Muhlenberg really has been dominating. And, and you know, Brockport, not a bad team. Uh, I had him at, at 25th on my ballot coming into the playoffs. But at the same time, the level of competition is going to go up big time this week and and beyond that if Muhlenberg moves on. So uh, time to time to strap it up. And uh, I, I, I'm just so excited for this week. And, I you know, I, we, we say that. A lot of times, and I, I mean, I think we keep it pretty honest when we're like, eh, this looks like kind of an eh, eh, slate of games. This does not look like an eh, slate of games. Like, this is, this is great. Moving on to the bottom right quadrant, let's just start this off by hearing from Jeff Thorne, the North Central head coach. Now on the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, we're with Jeff Thorne, the head coach of North Central, his team victorious in that epic second round game at Mountain Union, 59-52. to uh, I know it's only about uh, maybe 30 minutes or so after that game ended. Has anything sunk in yet? You know, I just uh, I just hung up with my wife, going to call her back. That's the first I've talked to her, and it was a little bit emotional. You know, this is uh, it's a family affair uh, with what we've, we've done here. Coming back to this place, my dad was had just he'd announced his retirement the following year when we were here, and we were so close to being in the Stag Bowl that year, losing by the one point. It was just it's pretty gratifying to be able to come back and, and end up on the right side of it this time in another just epic game. Right, uh, there was a spot in the game where they score like 18 unanswered points on you going into halftime. It was a, a situation where you know with a late touchdown they go from being up three to being up 10 going into the locker room. 
Yeah, and, and we knew we were getting the ball back. Uh, so we just talked about, guys, just you know, fight more, fight one more round. It's kind of one of one of our mottos, a couple of things, chase the lion and piggybacking on that with, uh, you know, my relationship with Mark Batterson and the book and that being our motto last year. Part of the story there is these two great heavyweight fighters and uh, John Sullivan was the heavyweight champion back in the 1890s and gentleman Jim Corbett got a chance to fight him, but not until after a year earlier he had fight the, fought the Australian champion uh, to a 60 round draw. And he explained it really was what changed his life in that his philosophy came just fight one more round. And then when he got his opportunity against John Sullivan, who was undefeated in 1892, I believe, uh, the fight went 21 rounds. And uh, he knocked him out in the 21st round. He, he just kept getting up and saying one more round, one more round. And that's kind of how our kids approach today. We knew this was going to be a battle. We knew we weren't going to be able to play a game that was going to stay in the 20s or 30s. That offense they have is just, it's amazing. It's, there's so many weapons. Um, so I'm, just, I'm thrilled with the, the adjustments our defense made in the second half and, and got a couple stops and gave us a chance to score enough to win. I know you told us a little bit about the book in the post-game news conference, but you guys had a chance to meet the author of that book as, as well this year. Yeah, you know, I played high school basketball against him. He, he grew up in the same church that I did, ended up marrying the, the daughter of the pastor. So Mark, uh, Mark and I go way back. We, it's not like we've been long-lost friends for that long, but um, we have some connections that brought us together. And when we flew out to Christopher Newport with, the, with Hurricane Dorian, we had to fly in there a day early. So we had to fly into Washington, D.C., um, stayed the night there, and I thought, hey, I'm going to call Mark, see if he's in town. He was, and uh, he met with our team and talked about the book and chased the line, but he told that story uh, of those two boxers. And, boy, what, a, what an irony that or how ironic it is that we've been able to use that you know, to, to really be a driving force behind today's game especially. Harkening uh, back to the game against Wheaton for a little bit, uh, you know they they sack Rudder seven times, and I think you know those that front four for them is you know basically about as household name as you get in Division Three. But uh, you know what did you see from them that a you know might have been different than from Mountain Union today, or some you know things that you learned from that helped you you know keep them on his feet today? Yeah, you know their def Mount Union's defense is different than Wheaton's. The structure, the the scheme, um, they don't rely quite as much on pressure. Not that that Wheaton doesn't. Or, yeah, I mean, Wheaton's front four is able to put pressure on you by themselves. That defense is the best defense in the country. There's no question about it. There's a reason they're ranked number one. Uh, they, that front four is very formidable. Um, we just we felt like with the three-down scheme that they run here, we, we felt like we could protect them. Now, they did get some pressure a couple times. I don't know how many sacks they got, but I thought Brock did just a, an amazing job today of getting out of the pocket and using his legs in really critical situations. Uh, two sacks, 22 of 36 passing for 522 yards and five touchdowns. They're like, they're like video game numbers. And, of course, Fulford on the other side, uh, very similar, 23 of 35, 549, four scores, uh, an interception, and a couple of fumbles. You know, I know like offense is your side of the ball, right? So, But you're out, there, you're out there watching that. You're out there watching him, you know, kind of – and watching them kind of gash people left, right, and center, just the same way you are, right? What, what you know? What were you? What goes through your mind when you know you're a? You're the head coach, but you know somebody else is in charge of the defense and stuff like that is happening. You know, I, I told Shane, our, our defensive coordinator, Coach Durking, that this was going to be a shootout. Don't you know? Hey, I, I'm not going to get upset with you. We we had to make some adjust, adjustments at halftime to take number one away from him. I just said at halftime, hey. Let's not let one beat us. If we're going to lose, make somebody else beat us. And, and he did a great job of coming up with a plan. And 
you know, Coach Spencer on the offensive side, he, our offensive coordinator, does an amazing job. Uh, and he was, the hours he put in this week, the hours Coach Durking put in too, but Brad just had, we had a great plan offensively, and we felt like we could score. We had to get enough stops so that at the end of the day, we had more points than they did at the end, you know? You just named two guys, your coordinators, who played for you guys during the course of this, you know, since North Central football came to prominence about 15 years ago. Yeah, quite honestly, every coach on our staff played for us, um, with the exception of, of Coach Sinclair, who's uh, a part-time coach, but he played in Illinois, played in the NFL for a little while, handles our linebackers and works with our special teams. So, you know, these guys know our culture, and I think that's really important. They know what's expected. They know what's uh, acceptable and what's not acceptable in terms of how we go about our business. So it, it's just a pleasure to work with guys who know what the program is about and what, what it was built upon by my dad, you know. How's your dad doing? He's doing great. He's doing great. And he's in retirement with my mom, and uh, my mom's continuing to stay in remission from the cancer that she has. So, you know, he's doing great. Had a great embrace with him at, at, on the field that was really pretty, pretty special. All right, so we have seen teams in the re relatively recent Division Three history, I guess, come here to Mount Union and win and then lose the following game. Rowan did it in the semifinals, got the, its doors blown off in the Stag Bowl. Uh, Mary Harden Baylor won here in the semis in 04 and lost a close game in the Stag Bowl the next week. You've got, you know, a, a quarterfinal game next week against Delaware Valley and then, you know, potentially up to two more games. How do you get the kids refocused and help them understand that you didn't win the championship here today? Yeah, I, I don't think it'll be hard. This wasn't our goal. You know, it just happened that, that Mount Union was our second round team. We knew it was going to be, we knew it was going to be really difficult and a huge challenge. Uh, we got a six hour bus ride home. I, my hope is that they you know, have some fun on the bus ride home, but you know, tomorrow it's time to get, get back to some film on Delaware Valley and, and move on to the next step. Keith North Central goes into the locker room down 10 points like we were talking about with Coach Thorne there. And that is a situation or a, a spot in the game where a lot of times in these games that are close early at Mount Union in this uh, stage of the of the playoffs, you know, Mount Union comes back out and they just roll the rest of the way. And that was not the case. And, and North Central never had any doubt that they were going to be able to come out and score right away. To continue the boxing analogy, I think it was completely fair to wonder whether North Central had punched itself out in the uh, in the first half, and and that that Mount Union was scoring with 15 seconds left on a D'Angelo Fulford two-yard run that caps a 95-yard drive uh, to go up 38-28 the half. It's very very fair to ask whether that is the knockout blow. Uh, North Central had led in the first half, led most of the first half, was up 28-20, and um, to go from 28-20 to 38-28 in a span of 10, 10 game minutes, certainly pretty depressing, and you got to figure, all right, they're going in, and one of two things is going to happen. Either they're they're going to – they're not going to fold up the tents, right? But, like, they, whoa, man, we gave up 38, and we just, we just can't stop them. Or, you know, you come up with a plan. You say, look, offensively, we're good. We can keep moving the ball. You just got to do something defensively to, to give us a chance. And and that's what Coach Thorne talked about in – uh in your interview with him was where he said, look, we just, just can't let Justin Hill just run by us constantly. Um, whatever you got to do, double team or whatever, to um, force the rest of the Mount Union roster to uh, to beat you. And, and I mean, I think that was smart. But, I mean, Wayne Ruby was having a day. Um, you know, Petroselli didn't do much of anything, to, which is a little strange, but also because they were – uh, having so much success passing the ball, 
Mountain Union was. They, uh, of their uh, 698 yards, 549 were through the air. They, they only ran for 149, which generally is a pretty good day. But um, a lot of that, a lot of those rushing attempts, 21 of them were uh, were D'Angelo Fulford. He ran for 124 yards, six yards of carry, yeah. and uh, and a couple of touchdowns. It was not a a you know a running game, and and I just thought North Central for them to go in at the half down ten to come out score right away and to to rally and. Twice, you know, they were down. Uh, even though it was 38 28, they get it to 38 uh, 35, and then Mountain Union goes back and scores on two plays, and it's 45 35. There were a couple of times where North Central easily could have could have packed it in or uh, or said, ah, we can't, we, we came up here, we gave it our best shot, and, and it didn't work out. They did it. They go up with eight minutes left. They end up uh, by being held to a field goal at that point in the game. Uh, they're up 56 52. Mountain Union goes for it. I believe it was a fourth down, didn't get it. North Central gets the ball back. They're held to a field goal after a nine-play drive, so it's 59-52. And then for the last eight minutes, these two teams spent the whole entire game going up and down the field, score, 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 score. And for the last eight minutes, nobody scores, and it ended up being tremendous finish. Fulford drives out um, Union down the field. They get into first and goal and then uh, push back. Tommy Hyland, the defensive lineman from North Central, has a great final drive, uh, pressures the quarterback, Gets to Fulford uh, three times on those last few plays, and uh, that fourth and fifteen ball is picked off in the end zone. And that's with two seconds left. So basically, Mountain Union had let the clock run down there. Basically, like this last, our last play is going to be the last play of the game, um, and it ended up not working out for them, and, and it turned into a monumental upset. And, and uh, I think, you know, all credit to North Central for for getting it done. That program has been knocking on the door for. A long time but pat as you referenced at the very end of the interview there too they've beaten mountain union but they've won a second round game north central has won second round games before and and their goal was not to get to the third round so uh so they quickly have to get refocused yeah the most interesting thing just looking back at this game uh like defensively is they did get stops in the second half they gave up a ton of yards uh, but they only gave up 14 points. You know, they uh, sacked and uh, Fulford, uh, Fulford fumbled the ball in the third quarter. Uh, they actually forced the uh, one Mount Union punt of the game late in the third. Uh, later on, a uh, fourth and four. You know, he's, uh, Fulford's forced to throw underneath, and Justin Hill can't uh, make it into a first down. And then, you know, that last game, that last play of the game, as you mentioned, is that that final stop. That's actually a fair number of stops in a game in which you gave up the uh, that number of yards of total offense, 698. Yeah, and I thought another you know takeaway is uh, two of the best receivers in the country. Justin Hill, we talked about, seven catches, 221 yards, and a touchdown, 31.6 yards per catch. Wayne Ruby. Uh, who I mentioned earlier, four for 138 for Mountain Union. He had 34 uh, yards per catch. So it, Mountain Union was was hitting the big plays. But on the other side, a guy we really have not talked about almost all season, and he's now uh, with uh, with his effort on Saturday, he's now the leading receiver uh, by total yardage in the country, Andrew Kaminsky. 12 catches, 256 yards, four touchdowns on the day. D'Angelo Hardy, a nice secondary uh, day with eight for 186. Brock Rutter, of course, um, you know, what, what more can you say about him? We said in the pod on Friday he has a chance to go out and win the Gallardi Trophy. I think potentially 
he did that, although Jackson Erdman certainly didn't do anything to lose it on Saturday against Chapman. I think it's got to be a race between those two guys at this point for uh, for anybody who's voting and paying close attention. My last big number out of this game was that North Central set its school record for total offense with 699 yards in the game. Their previous record had been set against North Park, and they set their new record against Mount Union, which is, like, mind-blowing. You would never put those two things in the same sentence. Elsewhere, of course, the uh, last game in this bracket, Delaware Valley beating Wesley by the score of 45-10, to 10, a game which was fairly close in the third quarter. Marcellus Pack runs for an 88-yard run, cuts it to 24-10. Then Delaware Valley hits Dan Allen for the second of three touchdown passes. And on the ensuing kickoff, this happens. It's Gordon Mann on the call for Delaware Valley Athletics. Stano kicks a line drive that will scoot to the dangerous Marcellus Pack, and here we go again. 20, 25, 27, 30. Now he cuts back the other way, loses the ball, loses the ball, and the Aggies recover! 25, 20, 15, 10, 5, touchdown! Rasheed Harvard! And the Aggies are up by 27. Marcellus Pack loses the ball, and Rasheed Harvard into the end zone for the touchdown, and the Aggies' sideline celebrates. Keith, the uh, Wolverines made that move to start freshman Drew Fry at quarterback last week. This week facing, obviously, a uh, defense of a much higher level when you go from Framingham State to Delaware Valley. He threw three interceptions. Uh, DelVal turned those into points. DelVal turned that fumbled kickoff into points, and it was just a route, a 45-10 route after the uh, first game, of course, was that epic four-overtime battle. Part of the reason Wesley starts Fry last week is so that you get him ready for a, for a game like this. And uh, she played like a freshman quarterback, and that's going to happen sometimes. But I thought, you know, that highlight you you talked about or you played with Marcellus Pack, about five minutes of game time before that, Pack has an 88-yard touchdown run. Wesley cuts it to 24-10, and the game is certainly not over at that point. And then Delaware Valley puts together nine-yard drive, a nine-play scoring drive, the Rashik Harvard fumble recovery, and then uh, win it going away 45-10. Much different than that four-overtime game. Delaware Valley came into the week as the number three offense in terms of total yards in Division Three. After you crunch the numbers from round two of the playoffs, now they're in the number two spot. They are facing a big challenge coming up this week, but uh, they did a pretty good job, obviously, in this uh, round two game against the Wolverines. Yeah, you see 45-10, and maybe the 10 is the, the more encouraging number considering Delaware Valley is now going on the road for a third playoff game. They won in round one at Bridgewater, 30-22. to Trailed 19-10 in that one and, and came back. And this one uh, against Wesley never trailed, but you see the 10. Nice job defensively. Going to be a big step up from freshman quarterback Drew Fry to senior Brock Rutter for North Central. And, and Delaware Valley is going to need to have that opportunistic defense. It, uh, it scored on a defensive touchdown late in the Wesley game. And uh, late in the Bridgewater game, they had a, they had a uh, defensive fumble recovery for a touchdown. And then against Wesley... He stayed scooped and scored. So you're going to need to get some kind of plays like that against North Central because uh, once uh, Duke Greco and his staff gets into this film and, and, and they probably have uh, have watched it uh, a couple times already, they're going to see an offense that is prolific that's going to go up and down the field, and Delaware Valley is going to have to match that a little bit. I don't think you get uh, you, you hold North Central to 10 this week. I think you're going to have to score 
probably 30 and, and be opportunistic and maybe get a couple of turnovers. Game ball. Game ball. Game balls. Game balls. It's time for game balls. My game ball is going to, I mean, come on. Can I give it to anybody else? It has to go to Brock Rutter. We mentioned uh, his uh, numbers in the interview with Jeff Forn a few minutes ago, so I'm going to find some other ways in which North Central excelled on Saturday. For example, converting 11 of 16 third downs and adding two more conversions on fourth down. Rudder converted more than one of those third downs with his feet, including moving the chains on a third and 12 with a 14-yard run. He threw for a 30-yard completion on a third and 28. He threaded the needle incredibly on a wheel route to running back Ethan Greenfield, getting the ball into an amazingly tight space so that Greenfield could catch it in stride and take it in for a 24-yard touchdown. Rudder just didn't miss receivers time after time. He also protected the ball well. Uh, the only North Central turnover came on a ball which deflected off a receiver's hands. Simply an incredible performance. Brock Rudder, game ball. Since I get to choose second here, I'll take Mary Harden Baylor wide receiver Janelle Reed. He had a 77-yard catch-and-run touchdown, a 40-yard teardrop catch with two minutes left in the first half against Huntington, and a minute later caught a swing swing pass for six yards, took it into the end zone. He finished with 10 catches, 253 yards, and three touchdowns. And I won't say he single-handedly finished off Huntington, but Reed is maybe the only really dangerous playmaker UMHB has this year. There's no Markeith Miller in the backfield. There's no Blake Jackson scrambling ability from the quarterback. Jace Hammock will run someone over before he'll run around them. There's a long history of UMHB big play wideouts from TJ Josie to Waikiki Walker to PJ Williams, but this crew might have to rely on Reed more than any crew team has relied on a wide receiver previously. And if he plays like he did against Huntington, UMHB will be fine, and I'll be all out of game balls. Well, nothing wrong with that number two pick for a game ball. Reed had a day. Justin Hill was right with him at halftime except that his game started an hour earlier and reed had those crazy numbers very early on after this monumental second round result it seemed like a good time to talk about teams on the rise in the d3football.com top 25 now, even though we won't do another vote until after the Stag Bowl, there's still some things to be thinking about. And Keith, why don't you go ahead and start us off? Well, besides the obvious idea that North Central can rise as high as number one, and Mount Union certainly will not finish there, I'm not sure I want to go down this particular rabbit hole right now. Everybody still alive can finish anywhere. I think UMHB is more likely to win a national championship than Delaware Valley, but everybody left has a legitimate chance to reach the Stag Bowl. There was someone who tweeted that Muhlenberg is looking like a number one team, my first instinct was to be like, slow your roll. You haven't played a ranked team since Susquehanna. But the tweet was not wrong. Muhlenberg looks amazing. Salisbury looks amazing. Wheaton, Delval, St. John's. I mean, I guess if we want to talk about eliminated teams who will rise, then we, we can consider Aurora, given the way it played St. John's and the way the Johnnies looked on Saturday. Central probably rises. Chapman and Union both impressed in these playoffs, but they were ranked 12 and 13, and they'll probably finish right around there, maybe a spot or two higher. I could see them leapfrogging John Carroll and Wesley, for example. I think we all want to reevaluate the CCIW teams as well, but North Central is ranked fifth at the start of the playoffs and Wheaton number three, so there aren't too many spots for either of them to rise. 
Yeah, nothing to argue with there. There's room for Wheaton and North Central both to move up. And I figure if we had re-voted today, these guys would probably be battling out for the number two and number three spots. That wasn't flying. That was falling with style. Taking a fall this week in the top 25, if we were voting, uh, with or without style, would be John Carroll. In my mind, this is the sort of result I was wondering about and I was waiting for. Since I don't think John Carroll was particularly competitive in its game against Mountain Union, anybody who competed with Mount or now anybody who competes with North Central should be considered higher on people's ballots than John Carroll. Yeah, JCU lost by only 23 points in a game that was 30 to nothing at halftime. Those are the games in which Mount Union can kind of just generally name its final score. And in this case, Mount just chose to run clock in the fourth quarter of a three-score game. They held the ball for a nine-minute drive, went for it on fourth down instead of attempting a 39-yard field goal. That's Mount Union kind of being a good sport rather than putting up the extra points that would have made it a 40-14 to game or maybe worse. North Central beating Mount Union changes that equation along with everything else that we've talked about here today. Well, I do think the inverse of that is probably true as well, that Susquehanna may get dragged up the pole as far as Muhlenberg takes them, and and that's what happens when your season is over. Your result, or maybe where you finish, is is tied to how we reframe your best and your worst game of the season, or maybe not your worst game, but certainly how you performed against the other really good teams on your schedule or the teams that are still active. So I think for my team, that'll take a fall. You know, Wesley is probably a team that was holding on to its number 10 ranking based on its four-overtime win over Delaware Valley in Week 2. And now that DelVal has wiped that result queen, clean with the 45-10 win in the playoff rematch, what does Wesley have to hang its hat on? A seven-point loss to Salisbury? Maybe. Wins over Endicott and Framingham State? I think the Wolverines will probably suffer in the final poll. And I do think it is about who you beat. So Muhlenberg's road to the final eight through MIT and Brockport isn't as impressive as Central's win over Oshkosh and subsequent loss to Wheaton. Now, Muhlenberg might well live up to its lofty ranking by winning more games in this tournament. And I think a fun game for voters to play is what if Team X swapped spots with Team Y? I'm pretty sure if Redlands had the MIT Brockport path instead of a road game at Mary Harden Baylor in round one, that it would have fared better. So as voters, we have to guard against assuming every team that lost in a round prior to a team that advanced automatically belongs below them in the poll. Looking ahead at Saturday's games, and we'll do more of this on the Friday podcast, but uh, Keith, we were talking about you know where we think these games will end up, and we did a little exercise like this last week in terms of you know what would be the most interesting games to least interesting games. What are going to be the, clo- the least close to the most close games in terms of score? Well, I am confident that the the biggest margin of victory when I make my quick hits picks, at least, and those are famously not always uh, accurate, but I, I think North Central, Delaware Valley, you got to give North Central quite a bit of an edge. And I think Delaware Valley is a good team. I saw them play back in, in round one. They're dynamic offensively. They have a game record on defense and Michael Nobile, but they're just they're like a really good playoff team. And I don't know if they are quite as good as the North Central team we saw on Saturday. For Delaware Valley to to win, especially with that game being on the road, they're gonna have to play one of their 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 best game of the season. Uh they certainly look pretty good against Wesley, but I think margin of victory wise, you'd have to put or expectation wise, let's say national expectation, North Central expected to beat Delaware Valley by 10, 14, something like that. Um, then afterward, 
I'm, I put St. John's in Wheaton, but I also I don't know that this is the second game on the list. And feel free to disagree in terms of if we're going uh, widest margin of victory to closest game. I, I put it because it, first of all, people some people think Wheaton's great. I think St. John's is going to be able to match the offense at least at sometimes. But St. John's has, has stumbled at times this year, so you just don't know which version of, of St. John's are you getting. Are you getting the one that that crushed the St. Thomas in the, the Johnny Tommy game, 38-20? Are you getting the one that lost to Concordia Moorhead? Are you getting the one that gave up 40-some-odd points to Aurora? Or are you getting the one that, that looked really great last week? I don't know how St. John's is going to look against Wheaton, so I think this one has the potential to be an all-time great game, but it also has the potential to be you know, Wheaton 38, St. John's 28 or something like that. So I'll put that second on the list. And again, going widest margin of victory to tightest. I think Salisbury Muhlenberg should be a good finish within one score, both the teams dynamic offensively and uh, have no idea how that was going to play out either. Could be 41-40, could be, you know, I don't know. I, I think there are going to be some points put up on the board as well as Muhlenberg's defense has played. I would be surprised if Muhlenberg flat has Salisbury figured out. But, uh, but that defense hasn't given up a point so far in the playoffs. So should be pretty exciting. And I think the closest game, if not the best game, now maybe one of these other two will be the best game, but but uh, UW-Whitewater at Mary Harden Baylor, not just because these are the teams with the, the championship pedigree and they've gone um, head-to-head in these, these type of battles before, but I think both of these teams are flawed in, in ways that some of their previous championship teams were not. I don't know if um, I just think it, that that's going to be like a like a you know twenty four twenty kind of game or something. I think it's going to the scoring is going to be held pretty low. Both teams are good defensively. Uh, have some shaky spots on offense for Whitewater. They just don't have the dynamic quarterback. And for Mary Harden Baylor, I just don't think they have the array of established playmakers that that some previous crew teams have had. Now they. Obviously, both teams have athletes all over the place, and it's going to be a great game. But I think that one has got the potential to be a defensive um, barn burner that comes down to a late field goal attempt or something like that. So I'd rank that the tightest margin of victory. But anybody out there who wants to disagree with me on the final three, I'd be willing to listen. Now's the time on Sprockets where we dance. That was the time of the podcast where we go to Twitter. Brad Cronin at SJU Johnny asks, what are the biggest contributing factors to the success of North Central, Wheaton, and Aurora, all within very close proximity of each other? Crazy to think that two conference opponents could meet in the stag. Well, absolutely true on the second one. You know, Keith, the first half of this question is really interesting because they are three really different programs. Like we've talked about, you know, Wheaton and its uh, national scope in terms of the kind of student body it draws, and it does the same thing in athletics. It brings kids in from all over the place. Uh, North Central is obviously a more established program, but they're kind of drawing from the same kids that Aurora has been and will be uh, going forward, so that'll be an interesting battle. I know there was a wide receiver who transferred from North Central to Aurora this year and then got hurt. And didn't play, but that caused some consternation in the preseason, and I suspect that those two are going to go head to head for a lot of guys going forward. Well, the, the, I think the biggest contributing factor to the success of those three programs is coaching. Coaching leads to recruiting, and when you have the the long line of thorns in the North Central program, it was uh, just a few years ago where John Thorne 
turned it over to his son, Jeff, who uh, obviously you heard on the podcast. Uh, John was the, the coach at North Central from 2002 to 2014, won 118 games in those years. He won four high school state championships before that. So clearly was an established coach and helped North Central bring the program up. And I think by turning it over uh, to his son when he stepped down in 2015, enabled North Central to keep the culture, as you heard Jeff talk about in in the interview earlier, um, also just to keep the ball rolling recruiting wise. You know, it, I, I think that to get those those inroads to put those tentacles out to the coaches in the area, I think that's just a really tough thing to do and do well because high school coaches want to send their best kids to a place where they know that kid's going to flourish. So, I think, uh, and obviously, they're, they're the on field coaching is great. You saw that on Saturday, but I think that is a big part of what you see at North Central. At Wheaton, Mike Swider has been there certainly forever, figured out how to recruit for Wheaton. And, and Wheaton, as you talked about, just has a different draw because of its profile as as a, a national Christian university. It's such a um, – it just get, they, Wheaton gets some kids that I think probably wouldn't be the three kids – if they didn't want to go to Wheaton and that just there are some schools like that in D3 that have that draw. You could make a case like that for, for, you know, St. John's and Mount union where people just want to play for these storied programs. Well, Wheaton has that kind of draw. It's, it's not the athletics as much as it is, you know, if, if you're, if you're religious um, and you want to study what, what Wheaton has to offer, it's just such a top notch institution for that. And I think Aurora coaching is just you know the opportunity to play for Don Beebe and the fact that this guy has a speed center that is open in the offseason. So the, probably the level of training that the Aurora kids are getting now is not what they were getting um, five years ago at Aurora. And, and Aurora has always been a program that's sort of been in the mix for conference titles. But I think what what Don Beebe brings is probably going to keep that, that level uh, up a little higher. So I think those are the biggest contributing factors. You're, uh, Brad is right that all those programs are within like eight miles of each other in the Chicagoland area. So um, there's plenty of kids to go around, especially with when considering where Wheaton is going to pull, pull from a national pool in North Central and Aurora may pull from, from more local pool. But um, I think all three of those programs set to, uh, to continue their success. You know, success is not new at, at North Central or Wheaton and, you know, Aurora has been somewhat up and down, but has been a program that, that's competed for titles in the past. So as long as those three coaching staffs are there under those three coaches, I think they're going to be fine. We'll talk a lot more about the games coming up uh, later on the next podcast. We'll also be talking about uh, we'll have feature stories on uh, a bunch of these teams as we go into quarterfinals week coming up this Saturday. And this was D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast number 264, season 13, episode 27, released on December 2nd, 2019. Thanks for listening and keep an eye on the rest of that coverage I just mentioned. If you like this podcast, please consider rating it in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts because that will help other football fans find it. And you can leave comments on a particular episode on the blog page. 
You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football, and Keith is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post with a legitimate email address at D3Boards.com. Also, you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Additional audio in this edition from Greg Thomas and Gordon Mann. And then thanks to all the schools who posted uh, post-game news conferences online. We drew from quite a bit of that over the course of this podcast as well. So thank you for the schools who did that. And especially to uh, Mike Falk at Muhlenberg who... uh, sent us a copy specifically along with Cyril Parham at Salisbury who uploaded something for us on Sunday. Very helpful. Thank you. Our theme music and a bunch of the other music we use in this podcast is by DJ Mentos, whom you can find at djmentos.com. Also, you can find him on Spotify. This episode also includes December Nocturne in G Major by Patrick Coleman, Opus Number 1. Thanks to our guest, Jeff Thorne, for his time on this edition of our show. And, of course, thanks to the creator of Around the Nation on d3football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. Before we get out of here, uh, we usually end with a clip from Jim Bargraff, who is the uh, late head coach at Johns Hopkins. Here, uh, we're going to end with uh, sound from the end of the game or after the game at Mount Union. This is John Thorne, the uh, retired head coach of North Central, leading the Cardinals in their post-game cheer. I am a champion, and I refuse to lose.